Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church and Merry Christmas. Ah, you can you can respond. It's all right. It's like you know. I know. I know that a holy night is kind of like it's like a it's like a sacred lullaby kind of thing, right? You're like, wow, but wake up, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. That was a little better. That was, we, we're, we're gonna have to we have to go there this morning. All right. So um, again, I, I, it is officially the Christmas season. Uh, I don't know if you realize that or not. Sometimes Christmas can sneak up on you. If you're anything like me, then that tends to come with a little shock every year. Like, it's how could it be Christmas already? Anybody else feel that way? I, I, I tend to be that way. Um, and I think one of the powerful aspects of the Advent season is that it allows us to tune into and prepare for the significance of Christmas. And so the Advent is, Advent means appearing, so it means literally that we are, the Advent season is that it's preparing our hearts for his appearing. And so Christmas is what we, when we celebrate when he, the light literally came into our dark circumstance and situation. And so if it feels like the Christmas season has sort of snuck up on you this year, then it's a sign that Christmas itself will also potentially come and go and leave you sort of just spinning into the next year. And then Christmas will come again and you'll be like, how is it already Christmas again? But God does not want us to live our lives in this perpetual spin. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, we see that he sets times and festivals and celebrations and annual feasts to remember who he is, remember what he's done, to, to not just get caught up in the ins and outs of life, but to attach and connect to the source of life itself, which is him. And so on Christmas, that's what we are celebrating, is that God is with us. He's not somewhere out there watching us spin around in circles. He is with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so it's important to lean into Christmas, not because of the sentimentality and the commercialism of it all, but because of what Christmas is all about, which is Jesus. Right? It's not just about gifts. It's not even about time with friends and family. Right? It's about, this, it's about Jesus. It's not about sentimental Hallmark movies or, or cookies or fairy tale imaginations. Like, you know, all those... Is good, it can be great, but honestly, without Jesus, those things will leave you empty and hollow and just spread thin if you don't remember what we're actually celebrating. And so it's important for our souls to soak in the true Christmas spirit on a regular basis because the true Christmas spirit is the Holy Spirit. And so the true heart of Christmas is the celebration of God's faithfulness to his people. It's the reminder that he's not left you alone in the dark. It's the reminder that he's with you. It's a reminder that he's even closer to you than your own breath. And all of this was inaugurated on that holy night in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago. And so to really drink in the significance of Christmas and to not just let it pass us by like just any other regular day... Like it has nothing to do with whether or not you watch Home Alone <laughs> or whether you get a white Christmas, which, spoiler alert, if this is your first Christmas in Virginia, probably not going to get a white Christmas. But you hear that all the time. Like, if it's not snowing outside, it doesn't feel like it's actually Christmas, right? Christmas has got nothing to do with snow. 
It doesn't. It's got nothing to do with even if you, maybe you've lost a loved one this year. And Christmas just doesn't feel the same because they're not around. Right? It's like, well, it's not really Christmas. Christmas is never about those things. You, could, you may spend Christmas alone this year. You may be deployed right now and have to spend Christmas alone. Christmas is not about those things. Those are good things. But Christmas is and it always has been about Jesus. And it's about, if you miss that, then you will miss Christmas. Because Christmas is all about the appearing of light to the world, our living hope in the midst of deep darkness and despair. You see, Advent always, always begins in the darkness. Advent always begins in the darkness. So if you're in the darkness in this Christmas season and you're struggling, Christmas often comes with a great deal of, of depression for people. I don't know if you knew that. There, are, there are Things spike at this time of year for many people. And it's often because they're looking to those things for their hope. And when those things fall, which they inevitably do in this world, then so does our hope. But our hope is not in those things or even those people. Our hope is in Christ. And the celebration of Christmas is and always has been about our hope meeting us in the darkness. Light in the dark. God with us. It's always been about that. And that's why, again, Advent always begins in the darkness. And so last week, Pastor Dave did a great job kicking our series, our Advent series off with the first candle of Advent, which is hope. He did a great job, didn't he? Anybody? Yeah? Yeah? Um, and so we read the Old Testament prophecy from uh, Isaiah 9-2, which said, um, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And so that was a prophecy speaking to a people who were in a very dark and desperate place. But the prophet Isaiah was lifting their eyes to see their certain salvation. Right? He was giving them a glimpse of the light to come, which would signal the dawning of a new day. It's like the morning star which rises just before the dawn to signal the end of the night with a message of certain hope because the darkness will soon melt away with the night entirely. This is what the morning star is. We're not a real astrological people anymore, but if you didn't realize this, there is a star that rises just before the dawn, signaling that the dawn is inevitable. The daylight is coming and nothing can stop it. This is why Jesus is called the morning star. Dawn has come. And certain, he is our certain hope. That's the light of certain hope that they were given through this message of hope by Isaiah. And then Isaiah 9, 6-7 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. He's not just some guy. This is God. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That means the Lord of the angel armies. He's the one that's going to do this. It ain't up to you. It's not about you. You don't need to trust in yourself to do this. We've tried. It hasn't worked. 
That's what's happening in Isaiah. That's what he's saying. He says, God's going to do it himself. So this message came to a very desperate and broken people in the midst of darkness. And it's a certain hope. It's not a wishy-washy maybe. It's not a guess. It's a yes. Amen? That's what our hope is. Our hope is substantial. It was the declaration of the true substance that they could cling to in the dark. It's the only substantial, it's the only substantial foundation in the dark of certain hope because it's an unbreakable promise that's made by God himself. So last week we leaned into and learned about this hope and that this hope is, I love this definition, hope is faith in the future tense, right? And so the reason our hope is so certain is because when you place your faith in Christ, you're placing your future in the certain hands of the creator of the universe. And he's the one that operates outside of time itself. So your future is in his hands. That gives us a certain substantial hope. So Advent reminds us that our hope is not in ourselves. Because if your hope is in your own strength or your own goodness or even your own faithfulness, then you're going to be an anxious, insecure mess. Our hope isn't even in our own ability to be faithful to God. Our hope is in God's faithfulness to us. That should be very freeing. That's what I want to talk about this morning. The next candle of Advent <clears throat> is technically faith. But I want to take it a little step further because it's easy to become so self-oriented that we make even faith all about us. Especially in our culture today, we tend to be extremely self-consumed, so much so that we even think that our ability to have faith and our ability to be faithful and our capacity to be good enough, strong enough, obedient enough is about us. Because if we can have enough faith, then and only then will God give us the good things that we then deserve. You see this? I want you to see this. It's wild how the fallen human heart can turn something as selfless as faith into a method of works righteousness. But the fact is that true faith isn't about us. It's not something that we produce in and ourselves. It's the symptom of a heart that's captivated by the faithfulness of God. It's all about him. You see, every miracle or breakthrough in Scripture isn't about the amount of faith in the believer. It's about the object of their faith, who is Jesus. Because if the object of your faith is you, then your faith is worthless. I don't care how tightly you squeeze your eyes and imagine it. It's not about that. It's always been about him. If the object of your faith is Jesus, then even faith the size of a mustard seed carries the cosmic force of eternity. And I want you to see this. You're going to see this today. That, that it, this morning, I want to talk about the faithfulness of God. So the next candle that we're lighting is the candle of God's faithfulness. So we have the candle of hope, and now the candle of God's faithfulness. Did that work? Yes, it did. And so, I want to take a deep dive into God's faithfulness, and I want to do that by looking at the life of a woman who was utterly captivated by his faithfulness. 
Because our faith comes by being captivated by his faithfulness. And this woman's name in Hebrew was Miriam, which means bitter. You may know her as Mary. Now, according to her worldly circumstance, she had a lot of reason to be bitter. She was a teenage peasant girl tucked away in a tiny village in the northern corner of Galilee named Nazareth. She was more than 100 miles by foot from the epicenter of any kind of significance in their culture. And during that time, the Romans had all the influence and affluence, and she was just a lowly teenage girl of an oppressed people. This was her circumstance. And by the world's standards, her circumstance were, or was, bitter. But Mary trusted in the goodness of God. She was not bitter to the Lord. She was a sweet aroma. Mary's hope was not in her circumstance. Mary's hope was in the Lord and in her coming Savior King. And I said before that Advent begins in the darkness, and that's exactly the circumstance that we find Mary in. She's in the darkness, yet her hope is certain because her hope is not in herself. Her hope is not in her circumstance. Her hope is in the Lord and even in his good timing. She's even trusting her future into his hands, no matter what her circumstances are. I love a a quote from a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was imprisoned for speaking out against Adolf Hitler. Um, and, and he spoke of Advent, saying, A prison cell in which one waits and hopes and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of hope must be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. Because it takes your mind off of yourself. What do you do? What can you do? I can't open that door. But he can. And he certainly will. This is a good picture of Advent as we await our coming hope. And for us, we look back to the substance of the truth that he has already come and he will return. So we live in the overlap as we look back to the first Advent and expectation of the second Advent, which is his second appearing. So this morning, though, I want to take a brief look at Mary's life I'm going to close with some practical ways that we can live captivated by the faithfulness of God. So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, here's what I want you to get. This is very important. This is really, really important when you, to walk and live out this uh, faithful walk with Jesus Christ. Remember in the dark what you heard in the light. Remember in the dark what you heard in the light. Say Remember. Remember in the dark what you heard in the light. So we're mainly going to be in Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 26 through 38, and Luke 2, verse 1 through 7 this morning. But I want to set the stage with the first part of chapter 1 and give you a full picture of the life of Mary as we're introduced to her. So this is going to be, again, it's what we do. You're going to get washed in the word this morning, okay? So I want you to lean in and pay attention as we get a full context so it gets deep into our souls, okay? So I want you to remember that the people of God have been clinging to this hope of the coming Messiah for centuries at this point in history. In fact, there's this sense of deep desperation in the people of God. They were promised light and life and salvation, and yet here they are in a state of darkness. They're oppressed by the Romans, and this illegitimate puppet king named Herod is sitting on their throne. He's not a son of David. He's not at all what God has uh, for the people. He's not what he's declared over them. And not only that, that God has been silent for the past 400 years. Not a prophet has spoken. Not a word of God has been written. 
And his people are longing and praying and crying out for the prophesied Messiah to enter into their circumstance and rescue them. That's the context. That's the context in which Jesus enters. And it's in these days that Luke 1 opens. Look with me at Luke 1, verse 5. It says this, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So, Zechariah is a highly respected man in the priesthood of Israel, and he's given the honor of offering up incense in the temple that was symbolic of the prayers of God's people. This is extremely important. Remember, Zechariah and Elizabeth are righteous before God. That means that in a time where a lot of people had lost hope, they had not. They were leaning in. They were in prayer. They were crying out to God for the coming Messiah. This was where their head and heart was, and yet their entire lives had been a struggle. But they still clung to hope. Many in Israel had not. There was, though, a remnant of the righteous who had, and their eyes were still fixed upon the Messiah. And so the imagery here as Zechariah enters into this temple and before the, the presence of God in the temple at the altar, he offers these, this incense. Now, that symbolized the prayers of God's people for salvation. And the imagery here is that those prayers rise unto heaven to fill the nostrils of God like a sweet aroma in his nostrils and in his lungs. Like God Almighty is going, as the prayers of his people fill his divine lungs. And we talked a lot about this in our series through Revelation. Specifically, and I love the power of this, in Revelation 8 where the physical veil is pulled back and we're given a glimpse into the spiritual realities that are being physically depicted in the temple here uh, in, in Luke 1. Revelation 8 says this. Look briefly with me at Revelation 8, verse 3 through 4. And it, it gives us a glimpse saying, and another angel, so this is the spiritual picture of what's happening. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, which is one of those things with that, that uh, incense kind of comes out of. Does that make sense? Um, it, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Now, this, this spiritual imagery displays the prayers of God's people that are filling again, the nostrils of God as he's inhaling them into his divine lungs, and he's savoring their cries as a sweet aroma. And what you see is he, he fills his lungs, and what comes next in Revelation is the unveiling of his redemptive plan upon the earth like a divine exhale of the breath of God upon all creation. That's what we saw in Revelation, and it is powerful. It's like as he's praying, he's going, and then trumpets. So this is the situation we're seeing here in Luke 1 also. 
This is exactly how the gospel of Luke opens with Zechariah offering up the prayers of the saints unto the Lord at the altar at the temple or in the temple. And so they represented the prayers of deliverance and of salvation. And as we're going to see, we all, they also represented very personal prayers from Zechariah himself and his wife for a baby. I love how personal God is. It's like he's not just about the big stuff. He sees you and he knows you and he wants to meet you in your circumstances. But he's not detaching all of it. It's all for him tied together. And we're going to see that here. So verse 11. And there appeared to him. So he's there. He's offering the incense that represents the prayers of the people. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been answered, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers, the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, again, remember, Zechariah is an old man, and so is his wife. Like, they were righteous before the Lord, but they've been praying for this kind of, like, unleashing of salvation their entire lives. So the incense was being offered, and it represented a lifetime of prayer and waiting and petitioning the Lord for the coming Messiah and, again, a personal baby of their own. And so here the Lord is answering their prayers all at once, and he's even inviting them to participate not only in just having a baby, but a baby that's a part of the redemptive plan of salvation for the entire universe. That's what we're seeing here. And it's very intimate and it's very personal, and yet it's extremely significant. Don't think that you're just like a nobody. God's bigger than just our little everyday stuff, and yet... God loves to meet us in the tiniest little things. Like, pray for that parking spot. He loves it. Right? He's not annoyed by that. Go for it. He might use that parking spot to do something huge in your life. Because that's God. You with me? So this is one of those answers to prayer, though, that just blows you away. Because Zechariah, you know... He's been praying for all these things, and now all of a sudden, in the 11th hour of his life, it's all come to pass with an answer. But Zechariah's time in the darkness begins to show here. Remember, he's dealt with disappointment for a very long time, and though he remained faithful in his prayers, it seems clear that he's become a bit disillusioned. He's the guy that's like, you pray for a parking spot, and then a parking spot comes, and you're like, uh, I don't really deserve it. Or, or, I don't know, is that really for me? I've been let down in the past. And I know I'm talking about a parking spot. Who cares about a parking spot? But you get what I'm saying. It applies to a lot more. He's dealt with disappointment. He's dealt with disillusionment. And yet he remains faithful. But it's still a struggle. And so verse 18, and Zechariah says to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now here's the thing. Zechariah is speaking from his disappointment. 
Like he knows better than this. Zechariah would have been extremely familiar with how God had opened the womb of so many barren women throughout scriptures. He was a priest. We're talking about one of the most educated people on the planet at this point. And so he knew about how an angel had come to Abraham and Sarah when they were old and advanced in years. He knew about how God had opened Sarah's womb to give birth to their son, their promised son, Isaac. He knew all about that. He knew about how God had opened the barren womb of Isaac's wife, Rebekah. She was barren too. God opened her womb miraculously. And then Isaac's son, Jacob, had a wife named Rachel, and he knew about how God had opened the womb of her barren, of his barren wife. And so, and then Manoah's wife, who gave birth to Samson, again, same thing. And probably most relevant one of all is how he'd opened the womb of Elkanah's wife, Hannah, in the Old Testament, who gave birth to the prophet Samuel. Now, in, in fact, when the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah that his wife will conceive a child and name him John, the word in Hebrew for John, and the word in Hebrew for Hannah are simply the masculine and feminine forms of the same word. Think about this. In other words, by saying his name would be John, the angel Gabriel was saying, remember what God did when he opened the barren womb of Hannah? Remember that? Remember all that? God's going to do it again through your wife, Zechariah. He was calling attention to what had already taken place. He's saying, remember, 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 remember how faithful he is to his people. Also, my name is John and my wife's name is Hannah. And yes, I think that's cool. (laughs) But the point here is that Zachariah's disappointments over time have clouded his apprehension of what is true and what is trustworthy and what's not. And the appearance of the angel Gabriel in the temple isn't enough to convince him, and so he asks for another sign. Now, if an angel ever shows up in your life, if you are praying, and then all of a sudden, a mighty angel shows up and tells you something, you probably shouldn't be like, how will I know? (laughs) Like, that's probably gonna like I'm gonna just go out on a limb and say that's a good enough sign. Right? Verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled. In their time. God, I love this. Like, if, it, if you've ever been disappointed, if you've ever been let down, it can be really difficult to get your hopes up again. Like, that's, that's very true. But even more true is that God never let Zechariah down. He never let him down. He simply had a greater plan and a purpose in mind. Like, how often had Zechariah studied God's word and even imagined himself in the place of Abraham or Hannah as they cried out to God for a child? How often had he put himself in those situations? Like, one of the most encouraging aspects of the story to me is that God is faithful even when we are not. 
Zachariah seems to have forgotten in the dark what he heard in the light, and yet God is still faithful and still so good to him. And his prayers are answered in a way that's more than he could have asked or even imagined. This is part of trusting the goodness of God at all times, no matter how long they take, or no matter how long it might take the things around you. Zechariah had forgotten that God is the God of him, the impossible. And he had placed his sights on himself. This is what insecurity is born of. It's trying to control and understand things for yourself instead of just trusting in a good God. And so the angel's rebuke here is actually an act of mercy. This wasn't simply a punishment. This was a discipline because he disciplines those he loves and he loved Zechariah who was a righteous man. And it was an opportunity here for Zechariah to learn to rest in the goodness of God. He says, watch it all unfold in God's time. Not necessarily in your time, Zechariah, but to realize that God's time is the best time because he's always on time. Can you get that? Can you trust in him? This is the best thing for us. And it was the best thing for him. And what an honor. So he basically says, watch this. I don't even need you to do a thing or say a thing. I'm hitting the mute button on you so that you can learn that it ain't about you. Verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And so here Elizabeth is now six months pregnant, and the story shifts to this small town of Nazareth where the angel Gabriel then appears again. Verse 27 and he appears to a virgin betrothed to a man whose, named, whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And so she's not barren. She's a virgin. And she's not yet married. Verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So Mary isn't too old. Mary's not barren. She's a young virgin. She's not even married yet. In fact, she was probably about 14 or 15 years old. That's hard to comprehend for us. I don't know about you, but my whole time, whenever I thought of Mary, I was thinking she's like maybe like 22, you know. Think 14. She hasn't spent a lifetime of crying out unto God for a child. She's certainly experienced darkness, but she's probably super weighed down by the end. Or, uh, she's, she's thinking about like her wedding day. That's what's on her mind. Like her world is thinking like what, what? What's going to happen? Like, she's on the center stage of Nazareth right now and probably overwhelmed by her dreams of being married to Joseph. Not the ins and outs of the politics between Rome and Israel like Zechariah would have been, right? Her prevailing thoughts would have been about just what's going on in her life 
And then she suddenly finds herself on the state of eternity in a significant scenario. And it says that she was greatly troubled. Like when Gabriel came to Zechariah in the temple, it says that Zechariah was, quote, troubled, right? Like that would be troubling if you're just sitting there doing your thing and then suddenly it's a cabal, Gabriel the mighty angel, right? And then, but here it says that Mary is greatly troubled. In other words, you know what that means when things are emphasized in scripture like this? Like don't miss the formality of it. I mean, I'm sorry, the formality sometimes makes us miss what's actually being communicated. Like what's going on here? When it says that she was greatly troubled, it means she was freaking out. Okay? And you would be too. And so the mighty angel calms her down, and he tells her not to be afraid, and he repeats to her that she has found favor, or the word is literally grace, with God. And this is a phrase that connects Mary with a number of Old Testament characters who found favor with God. She's suddenly been placed in the category with Noah and Moses and Gideon and David. They were all said to have found favor with God because of their faithful obedience to God in every difficult, or sorry, very difficult circumstances. And so it's traced to their ultimate trust in God over their dark circumstances. That's the theme here. This is about Mary's faith in the faithfulness of God. Verse 31. And the angel's speaking, and he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means the Lord saves, which she would have immediately known. And so verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, which was also a direct title of Almighty God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so this is the prophetic Davidic king that we just read about in Isaiah. The Son of David, the Son of God, who's even identified with God. This is the one that's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. All of these things ring true when hearing who this little baby's going to be. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now this may sound a lot like Zachariah's response, right? Like, part of you, if you're just reading through this for the first time, and you're like, ooh, don't say that to Gabriel. <laughs> right? Because it sounds a lot like what he said. Remember, his response was, how shall I know this? For I'm a man, for I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Right? And he got rebuked and muted. But there's this subtle but very big difference between Mary's response and Zachariah's response. First of all, there's a big difference between the barren conceiving and a virgin conceiving, okay? So there have been multiple cases of the barren miraculously conceiving throughout redemptive history in Scripture. And so, but this is different. No virgin has ever conceived before. Nor since, just in case you were wondering. Right? And so this is different. She wasn't barren she was a virgin. This is on another level. So her question is, how will this be? But Zechariah's question was, how shall I know? See the difference? The difference is trust. 
The difference is faith. In other words, Zachariah's issue was faith. He needed another sign. But Mary's question isn't about faith. It's about function. <laughs> and honestly, think about this. I love this. Mary's question is really packed with just faith. Like, Gabriel hadn't told her that these things were going to happen before she got married. Like, why does she assume this? Think about that. Like, she, she knows nothing is impossible for God so much that her question reveals faith. Like, I, I, Gabriel didn't tell her that these things were going to take place before she got married. She just assumes it. She knows nothing is impossible for God so deeply that she's just like, well, yeah, of course, why not? Right? Except for the function stuff. Can you help me out with that? That's a little different. But this is where her head is. This is where her heart is. I want to picture the angel kind of like smiling when she asks this question. Like, okay, we're skipping right to the point here. Thought I was going to have to, you know, connect some dots, but we're going right to it. So like, like you'd think she would, again, assume that he was talking about the baby she and Joseph would conceive together later. But she's all in, man. She's just trying to understand how it's all going to go down. So verse 35 then says, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the language that's used here has so much implications of biblical imagery that's attached to it that just saturates the Bible. Like the way that the Holy Spirit will overshadow her is an allusion to the way that the cloud of God's glory overshadows the tabernacle in the Old Testament book of Exodus. In the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, when they were in the desert, God tells them to set up a tabernacle, which would be the forerunner of the temple, right? And so they set up all this stuff, and then the, the cloud of God's glory overshadows the tabernacle. So all the people step back, and they look, and they see this glorious cloud of God's presence overshadow the tabernacle. And then when the cloud rescinds itself, you know what's left? The presence of God is in the midst of them. That's cool. And so what we see here is that it's also, so the, so the, the presence of God is going to overshadow you. The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you, and then you're going to be left pregnant with the presence of God. And then it's also the language that Jesus uses, step it up. It's the same language that he uses for the way the Holy Spirit will come upon his disciples and fill us to be witnesses to the ends of the earth in the New Testament. This is why you are called temples of the Holy Spirit. If you've been filled with the Spirit of God, you're walking temples. The presence of God is in you. That's powerful. So in many ways, Mary is a picture of the church who is pregnant with the presence and promise of salvation for the world. And so are you. Revelation 12 actually drives this really home, and I encourage you to go read that. Feel free to drop back and take a look at that chapter or the sermon that we, we did online. We got it posted online when you get a chance. I don't have time to go back to that, but it's powerful. We preached that one last Christmas, and it'll change the way you think of the Christmas story forever, I promise. But back to Gabriel. So he's confirming that the virgin birth here, that he's confirming the virgin birth here, and he's explaining how it's both supernatural and also part of God's redemptive plan from the beginning. So back to verse uh, 35. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. 
And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Definite mic drop moment. And the angel departed from her. Now that's the response of a heart that simply trusts the Lord. Like there's no conditions attached. There's no promises made. There's no quid pro quo happening here. She's not demanding to understand it all. She doesn't say, but what if Herod tries to kill all the children under two years old and, and we're in the city? What happens then? She doesn't say, what if there's no room in the inn? She doesn't say even, like, what about Joseph? Like, what if he decides to divorce me and the people try to stone me? Like, remember that adultery in that time was punishable by execution, but so was blasphemy. So what are you going to say? Oh, no, it's okay. It's God that's in my womb. That's probably not going to stop the stoning, right? So explaining all of this, like, she, all of the, behold, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She's not saying as long as nothing difficult or confusing happens, I'm in. She's just saying, I'm in. I trust you. I trust you with my future. I trust you with my present because you've been faithful in my past. Now, some might say that's not very reasonable, but they'd be wrong. It's the most reasonable response you can give. She trusts the Lord and she knows that nothing's impossible with God. It's not about her plan. It's about his And Mary knows that the best course for her life is for it to play out according to God's word. And it's the best course for your life as well. But what she's signing up for here isn't without difficulty. We know that in our past as well. It's not without difficulty. The worst difficulty that we experience is the difficulty that we do not entrust to the Lord. But he takes even bad things and makes them good. And that means that all that lays in front of you, he will make it for your good. It almost sounds like a promise or something. If you love him and you're called to his purposes, which I pray every one of you is. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Right? We can trust him. She knows he's bigger than it all. And she knows that he'll take care of it all, even when she doesn't understand it What follows is not an easy road, nor is it a short road. The next thing Mary does is she takes off on foot to see Zechariah and Elizabeth, and that would have been a grueling 80-mile walk up into the hill country of Hebron. 80 miles. She's newly pregnant, and she's like, I'll take an 80-mile trip up into the mountains. Okay? Like, that's lots of time to ponder. That's lots of time to process. It's lots of time to pray. And she arrives and she meets her relative, Elizabeth, who is, in fact, six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And even as a six-month-old baby, by the way, still in the womb, John leaps for joy at the presence of Jesus, who would have been a newly conceived child in his mother's womb. Like, if that's not a commentary about life in the womb, I don't know what is. The whole experience causes Mary to write her own song of praise, like her very own psalm magnifying the Lord. 
And so the, the next passage that we get here, it starts in uh, Luke 1, verse 46, and it's known as the Magnificat. And we don't have time to get into it this morning, although I want to, but it's really important. I want to note this, how intentional and mindful Mary is to celebrate and praise the Lord. And she does it even through song. She doesn't let these amazing moments pass her by. She sings about it. She memorizes this song. She gets it in her soul. She doesn't just go, wow, that was cool. On to the next thing. It's very important. She's going to need that going forward. It's like a memorial for her soul. This is important. Sometimes, that's why I, I love the quote, I can't remember who said it, but some of these songs, I like singing some of these older songs because songs are not just a thing we sing. They're not just something we sing. They're places we go. When you develop a heritage in the Lord, then you sing songs and you remember that time when you sung that song 15 years ago and it was a dark place and God brought you through and you praised him through it. And it brings this thing out in you. Some of you may be establishing that heritage this morning. I want to invite you to continue to do that. So then Mary stays with Elizabeth for about three months. And then he, she uh, returns back home, another 80-mile journey, <laughs> as she enters into her second trimester, right? Hopefully the morning sickness is worn off by then, but maybe not, right? Either way, her response, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. <laughs> right? That's... Morning sickness is real, and, and all the mothers in the womb said, well, some of you might not have had a, I don't know, some of you get, that's just mercy of God. Um, <laughs> but turn with me here to Luke 2, verse 1 through 7. It says this, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration where uh, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So at this point, we're talking nine months pregnant, okay? Mary has to take another long journey. This time, it's over 100 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Nine months pregnant, and they didn't have a minivan, right? At best, they got a donkey. But the reality is, this very strong peasant girl probably would have walked the majority, if not all of the way there. And so, by the time they get to Bethlehem, though, she's ready to give birth, right? Um, and Bethlehem, by the way, just to see the hand of God's sovereignty over this, is where the Messiah was prophesied to be born powerful. And so she gets there, verse 6. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So this would have been a pretty dark moment for her, honestly. And no doubt also Joseph. It would have been a, a long, grueling journey at nine months pregnant, right? They finally arrive in Bethlehem, and the only place available is an animal stall outside of somebody's house. Like, that was their circumstance. But this blessed and highly favored woman, like, she didn't get a room at the inn even. But she's walking by faith in the faithfulness of God, not in her circumstances. And even those circumstances, even what could be a bad thing, we look at and how many people have been encouraged by the fact that the king of the universe was born and laid in an animal trough. 
that's so encouraging to people to know he meets us where we are. The God of the universe is not distant. He knows. He knows. And that all came about as she's experiencing these hardships. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You can be sure that Mary remembered in the dark what she heard in the light. These are the circumstances through which the sovereign king of the universe chose to enter into our situation and light it up from the inside out. And this is how he still chooses to bring light into the dark through his people. Through the faith of his people who trust him, they trust in his faithfulness despite the circumstance. Now, I've mentioned before that this is more than just a story about Mary. Like Mary, in many ways, is a picture of the church. It's a picture of God's people pregnant with the presence and promise of Christ, who is the hope of the world. It's a picture of you. As we bring the good news of the gospel that God became a man, he lived the life we couldn't live, he died the death we deserve to die, and he conquered death in the grave by paving the way to eternal life, and an eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die, but an eternal life that starts now through the indwelling of his spirit in us, empowering us to be witnesses to the world around us, embraced into this amazing journey of hope and faith in his faithfulness. This is why the most faithful prayer we can pray as his people is, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Not according to my word or my plans or my hopes or my feelings or my insecurities, but according to yours, which abolishes all of that stuff and sets it aside because your ways, your will is what I desire most. That's where our true comfort comes from, is knowing that he is with us. So then the question becomes, how then do we live? How do we walk this out? How do we do this? How do we, how do we walk in this kind of faithfulness in our everyday life, especially when the world around us and the circumstances around us are dark and difficult? When I was about 14, I went hunting with my dad and one of his friends. Um, I'm from eastern North Carolina, and I don't know if you know this or not, but um, there's a lot of, like, bears and stuff down there. So, um, so we, we get up way before the sun. We were actually going deer hunting, and, uh, and we go out there with my dad's friend, who I don't know at all. And I'm sure my dad doesn't really know him very well either. He just was probably like, hey, I got some deers on my property. Deers. I got some deer on my property. Um, you know, come hunt. So, like, great, let's go. So, um, anyway, he, we, I go out with him, and, and he, we're, we're driving down this path, and he drops my dad off at his stand, and he basically is just like, hey, just walk a few yards in down that path, and your stand is on the left. Can't miss it. Great. So um, it's pitch black dark outside, and I'm here with this guy. I'm like 14 years old, and um, I don't know this guy from anyone, and we drive down the path in the middle of nowhere, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I, you know, he, he, the guy is like, he stops, and he goes, you see that path? And he's got a thick eastern North Carolina accent. He's like, you see that path right there? I'm like, yeah, I see, I see the path. And he goes, you're going to walk down that path probably about two miles. Okay? It's pitch black dark. You walk down that path about two miles until the path runs out. Right? Then you're going to flash your light real quick. Not too much. Don't want to scare them deer. And then you're going to see a little pin reflector on them trees. Okay? Like a little reflector to the size of a pin. And then he goes, ask your next path. Right? So 
And you can walk about another mile till it opens up a bit, and then you just walk down that tree line until you come to your stand. So I'm like, all right. And he goes, um, you'll probably hear the deer in there. You know, you'll hear the deer walking in. Only use your light if you need it, right, because you don't want to scare the deer off. So I'm like, okay. So it's not out. It's in thick woods, and it's in the middle of the night. So you can't see your hand in front of your face in this environment. So um, I, I walk in, you know, and oh, oh, he, this is the most important. He says, um, go ahead and load your gun. Because they killed an 880-pound black bear in there, state record. <laughs> he goes, apparently he was eating hogs, which they said was unnatural. Natural or not, though, them bears are big in there. So you might want to chamber a slug as you're walking in. You know, slug's got that stopping power. That's what he said to me. I'll never forget. He made sure that I had a slug chambered in the shotgun, my 12-gauge, as I'm walking in, in case I come upon a 1,000-pound black bear. So I'm 14, and then he just goes, good luck, you know, and I, so I get out, and I'm just, I'm like, of course, I'm, I'm wishing I had like a strobe light, you know, I want to just, anyway, but I don't, I, I walk in, and I'll never forget, you know, I, I'm walking, at first I thought he was messing with me, turns out this is a real thing, feel free to Google it, state record, Craven County, North Carolina, 1998, 880 pound black bear. Legit happened, I was in those woods. So I'm walking through these woods for like two miles trying to find this little reflector light, and I'm scared to death. Like two miles is a long way in the middle of the dark. And so I could hear animals moving around me on every side in the woods all around me, and I'm convinced that I'm being like surrounded by a coordinated attack effort by a family of black bears. You know, like the, the mom and dad are here, the little ones are like, Shh. anyway. So I'm, I, I remember like, I, I, I'm confused, I'm scared, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm convinced that I have stepped off the path or I've missed that little pen reflector because it was such a long walk. So I finally, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going and I finally find the light and I do my little flash and it reflects and I'm like, it might as well have been the star of Bethlehem, like guiding me to salvation. So I find the next path and I walk down it and I finally get to my stand, but I was so anxious for the sun to come up, I don't even know if any deer came out at all. Like I just was like wanting the night to melt away. I was just waiting for the sun to rise. That was my whole hope. Just this, it's difficult to walk in the dark. So I want to close with three things that we learned from Mary here about walking in the dark and being captivated by the faithfulness of God. Because in that circumstance, I did not know Jesus. My faith was only in my 12-gauge, which I'm not sure at that point could have even stopped a bear that big, right? So, but I got three things that we learn here. And the first is trust. When walking in the dark, trusting God more than anything or anyone is your only real comfort. When walking in the dark, trusting God more than anything or anyone is your only real comfort. Even trusting in him more than you trust in yourself because your eyes will play tricks on you in the dark. You know how many times I was convinced that every bush and every tree was a massive bear? It was an anxious mess. That's what happens in the dark. We live in dark circumstances. Your senses will play tricks on you. You will see things that are not true. You have to trust in him because he sees the truth. He is the truth. The night's constantly playing tricks on us, but God sees it all. The question is, do you trust him, and are you listening to his voice of truth and comfort? 
Otherwise, you'll step off the path because of your own fear and anxiety. And you'll leave him and you'll run right into the mouth of the bear. You've got to ask yourself, do you trust the Lord? Do you believe he's good? Do you really believe that the best course of your life is to live according to his word? Do you trust him? Is he trustworthy? The answer is yes, but I can't answer that for you. My walk down that path through the dark was filled with anxiety and fear. I was insecure. I felt lost. I felt hopeless. And, and, and for most of that journey was just crazy because I didn't, A, trust the guy who dropped me off in the middle of nowhere in bear country. And, and you know, again, I wasn't even sure that my gun would do the trick. But the question that we've got to ask is not even to trust in ourselves or our capacity to handle our situations or the situations we find ourselves in the future. It's does he have the capacity to handle it? And is he good? And does he love me? It's not, do you trust the people around you? The real question is, do you trust the Savior and King of the universe? And if you do, then you can love the people around you and point them to him. Welcome to church. And we lean into him every step of the way and into his comfort. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Not because my 12 gauge is with me but because the Lord is with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Before we baptize people, we ask two questions, two very simple yet profound questions. One, do you believe Jesus has done everything necessary to save you? And then two, will you go where he asks you to go and will you do what he asks you to do? That's it. Essentially, do you question, or sorry, do you, do you trust him? Are you willing to say along with Mary, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The second thing we learn from Mary is about expectation. When walking in the dark, you can expect to encounter things you can't control and don't understand. This is a big one. When walking in the dark, you can expect to encounter things you can't control and don't understand. We call them scary things. God calls them opportunities to trust him. That's what she signed up for when she said yes to Gabriel. Not long after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph take the child Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord. And they encounter a righteous man named Simeon who had been waiting and praying for the Messiah. And the Spirit of God had revealed to him that he would not see death before he sees the Lord's Christ. And so we're told that Simeon sees the child Jesus in the temple and the Spirit clearly like just lays it on him. This is the one. And he swoops him up in his arms and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant to part in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel and his father and his mother marvel so Mary and Joseph marvel at what's said about him and then watch this Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother behold this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. She knew and learned and was told early on 
that this would not be an easy journey. She endured suspicion from her family and friends and even Joseph regarding her pregnancy. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She endured extreme hardship and journeying hundreds of miles as a pregnant teenager from Nazareth to Hebron and then from back, back to Nazareth and then from Nazareth to Bethlehem only to give birth in an animal stall and lay a new, the newborn king of the universe in a feeding trough. Let it be to me according to your word. I'm a, so, a servant of the Lord. Behold, behold, behold. That means it's true. Then Herod issued a decree to kill every baby under the age of two, so she endured another grueling journey into Alexandria to escape. That's Egypt with an infant. But through it all, God made a way. He was with her. He comforted her. He was faithful. And she needed that comfort because the most confusing, overwhelming, and difficult part was to come when her baby boy and the light of the world would be crucified right in front of her. Her soul would be truly pierced. And she was told as much. And yet still, her response was, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She wouldn't understand it. She, it was all out of her control, but it was never out of his control. And she knew he would be faithful. Even in the darkest of nights, which would have been that Good Friday, she was right there. She trusted in God more than herself. She expected to encounter things she couldn't control and didn't understand, and yet she knew he was still good. He was faithful. It wasn't about her faithfulness, it was about his. And the final thing that we learn from Mary about walking in the dark is to remember. Say remember. Remember in the dark what you heard in the light. One of the habits Mary develops along this journey is that she doesn't experience these powerful moments and let them just go by. Multiple times, multiple times, we're told that when she experiences things like that prophecy or that prophetic word that Simeon gave her and another one that Anna gives her, or when the shepherds come, we're going to hear about this next week, when they, all that stuff happens and people show up and they talk about angels singing and all these things, you know what she does? It says multiple times that she treasured them all up, pondering them in her heart. She doesn't let them pass her by. Like, others wondered and were amazed. Like, they're like, wow, that was cool. On to the next thing. These miraculous events caused many even to rejoice. But Mary, it says, treasures them up and ponders them in her heart. The word treasure here means to store and to guard them. She's setting up places of remembrance in her soul, like flashlights that she can pull out when it gets dark. In those moments where you look, if you look at your past as though this is where life has just wounded you, you cannot see the future with hope. But when you look back at your past and they were places of remembrance where God saved you and has healed you, then you will look at your, past, your future with the grace of God in mind, with hope. Because he's with you and he's gone before you and he's prepared a place for you, even in the presence of your enemies. She knew that because she was mindful at every moment and was storing them up, treasuring them and pondering them in her heart. They were Ebenezer's, which is what the Bible calls them. Places of remembrance. 
Even in the, when the bleak midwinter night closes in on her and her own soul is pierced and overwhelmed with what she can neither control nor understand, she's got those places of remembrance. And it's those things that she's treasured in her soul, those Ebenezer's of God's faithfulness that bring her through the darkest night. It's the dark night of the soul. And that dark night of the soul, ladies and gentlemen, is not an exam that you can cram for the night before. It's a preparation that only happens by being mindful in every moment along the way of God's goodness and faithfulness. In every moment of life, all the way through. It's a preparation that happens by, by, by singing that song of praise that he's so magnificent and significant. It's that time where you stop and you sing and you pray and you thank and you're, you get that attitude of gratitude in all things because it, it's intentional and spending time marinating in the goodness of God and treasuring it all up in your heart. It's that quiet time that isn't just for youth group ministries. It's that quiet time with the Lord where you step back and you say, God, you are king. I am not. You are good. I am not. I trust you, not my heart. You are good. Lead me. I trust you. Journaling, praying, praising, thanking, remembering, treasuring, not just trivial things, guys. This is not just holiday sentiments. This is a lifestyle of those pregnant with the presence and the promise of God. So I want to encourage you to be mindful of him and his word. And I want to encourage you when you face difficulty to learn to identify what is true and what is the lie. To be mindful of it. One of the most helpful exercises I know for treasuring up the goodness of God is to write a psalm. You see it, the whole, the, the, the Bible is chock full. If you open your Bible up to the middle, you're probably going to find a psalm. And so the psalms is one of the most helpful tools that I have found in life and ministry. And so I, I know we're out of time, but I'm going to give this to you anyway. So one of the most helpful exercises here is often I will write out a four-paragraph psalm. I've got a slide for it. A four-paragraph psalm. This is often the structure of the psalms that David wrote. It'll start with identifying the struggle. What's going on? What is the thing that I'm struggling with? Right? You can write this down because I, I do want to encourage you to do this in, in order to treasure these things up as you walk with God. Identify what's going on. Two, identify the lie you're believing. Or maybe it's just a lie that's being told to you, whether you're believing it or not. Identify it. And then three, identify the truth of the gospel. What's true? What does God say about my circumstance? What does God say about this situation? And then four, apply that truth to the lie and ask God to help you walk in the truth and thank him for it. Praise him. Identify the struggle. Identify the lie you're believing. Identify the truth of the gospel and apply that truth to the lie. Expel it like light turned on in the dark. And then pray and ask God to help you walk in the truth and thank him for it. Get, that, get it in your heart. Even in the dark, this is Advent. May we be a people who declare, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. May we remember in the dark what we heard in the light. Let's pray.